From New York, this is Democracy Now! Today, we accept with humility the victory the people of Guatemala gave us. Ballot boxes have spoken, and the Supreme Electoral Court, with 93.6 of the tally, has officially recognized the result. And what the people shout about is enough of so much corruption. In a stunning rejection of Guatemala's ruling business and political elite, the progressive anti-corruption campaigner Bernardo Arevalo has won Guatemala's presidential election in a landslide. But will he be allowed to take office? We'll go to Guatemala City for the latest. Then to South Africa, where leaders of BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, are holding a major summit as the group looks to expand. I think this summit is going to demonstrate the coming together of the Global South in a show of unity, in a show of strength, and in a show of friendship and cooperation. We'll go to British Columbia, where Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has deployed the military as more than 400 wildfires have forced over 35,000 people to evacuate. As Canadians are seeing in the horrific images they see uh, of uh, devastation and um, fear uh, of uh, residents in Northwest Territories and in B.C., um, it is an extraordinarily serious situation. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Guatemala, progressive politician Bernardo Arevalo has declared a decisive victory in a presidential runoff election against former First Lady Sandra Torres. Arevalo, leader of the Semilla Party, took nearly 60 percent of the vote Sunday. He's vowed to fight corruption and push for social reforms. His supporters poured into the streets of Guatemala City to celebrate. Democracy won. We will be able to dream of a different Guatemala. I hope a little by little we will abolish poverty. There is new hope for Guatemala. Guatemalans are happy and we are telling these corrupt politicians they must respect our vote. Guatemala has already changed. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of the former president, Juan José Arevalo, Guatemala's first democratically elected president who pushed for revolutionary policies when he was in office from 1945 to 51. We'll go to Guatemala City for more after headlines. Ecuadorans also took to the polls Sunday for a snap presidential election. Leftist Luisa González took the lead in the first round and will face Daniel Noboa in a runoff election in October, as neither candidate won over half the vote on the first round. González is a member of former President Rafael Correa's Citizen Revolution Movement Party. Noboa is a businessman whose father, Álvaro Noboa, is one of Ecuador's wealthiest people. Álvaro Noboa is a banana industry magnate who who previously ran for president, has been accused of multiple tax and labor violations. Luisa González spoke to supporters Sunday. We don't want Lasso 2.0. We don't want anybody disconnected from the people's needs, because then we would again face a situation in which we would have a president that rules for the companies and not for the needs of Ecuadorians. At least three political leaders were killed ahead of Sunday's election, including presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio. 
On Sunday, Ecuadorian voters also overwhelmingly supported a historic referendum blocking oil extraction in the Amazon's Yasuni National Park, the largest protected area in Ecuador, with massive petroleum reserves crossing through indigenous Yasuni land. The effort was spearheaded by indigenous leaders and environmental defenders. The group Yasunidos said on social media, quote, this is the first time a nation chooses to defend life and leave petroleum underground. Tropical Storm Hillary made landfall Sunday in Baja California, Mexico, and shortly after in Southern California, where authorities have warned of life-threatening floods. One person died in Mexico when their vehicle was swept away in water. School districts in Southern California and Nevada have canceled classes. In Palm Springs, the 911 emergency phone system was knocked out Sunday evening, as residents of California's desert towns say they've never witnessed such extreme storms. Bit unprecedented. We've had storms before, but never anything quite this windy and rainy at the same time. I have a friend who just saw a 60-foot carport get blown off of his neighbor's house and carried four houses up. Meanwhile, further north in Washington state, one person died in a growing wind-fueled wildfire near the city of Spokane. Governor Jay Inslee declared a state of emergency. There's a beast at our door, and that's the beast of climate change. It seems like the whole world is on fire today. Yellowknife Canada, with over a thousand fires burning in Canada. Maui, with Lahaina, uh, burnt to the ground. And now Spokane County, and 35,000 acres in fire today in Washington state. Canada is sending its military to help tackle its record-breaking wildfires in British Columbia. So far, more than 35,000 people have been evacuated. In Hawaii, the death toll from the Maui wildfires has reached 114, with over 1,000 people still missing. President Biden's meeting today with federal, state and local officials, as well as survivors in Hawaii. Niger's military junta said it's open to talks following the July 26 coup and has proposed a three-year transition to civilian rule. Coup leader Abdurrahman Chani announced the plan after meeting with delegates from the West African regional bloc ECOWAS, which has threatened military intervention and imposed sanctions on Niger. On Sunday, thousands of coup supporters rallied in Niger's capital, Niamey. We didn't ask for this coup d'etat, but it's done. We'll take responsibility for it. But instead of punishing us, ECOWAS needs to ask the right questions. What has led us to this situation? What led to this repeated coup d'etat? Not just in Niger, but in West Africa in general. Instead of sitting down to negotiate, you put a gun on the table. You threaten us and you think you'll get something out of it. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, at least six children were killed in a fire at a camp for displaced flood victims. The blaze started as a child was cooking unsupervised, burning down hundreds of makeshift tarp dwellings. The U.N. said some 3,000 families lost their homes after recent intense flooding and mudslides in eastern DRC. Egypt's authoritarian president, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, has pardoned nearly three dozen political prisoners, including a leader of the Arab Spring uprising that ousted then-President Hosni Mubarak in 2011. Ahmed Duma was freed Saturday from the notorious Badr prison after nearly a decade 
behind bars. In 2013, he and two other protest leaders were arrested for violating a law effectively banning public protest. His lawyer, Khaled Ali, welcomed Duma's release, but called on Egyptian authorities to set other political prisoners free. Thank God for Ahmed's release. But honestly, there are still many inside, like Allah Abdul Fattah, Abdul Munin, Abdul Fatuh, Muhammad Alas, Muhammad Oxygen, Muhammad Adil. There are also still a lot of imprisoned women. And we hope that the next time, some of them will also be released, because this is their right. So far, there has only been a focus on the male activists, but not for the women. Saudi border guards have killed hundreds of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers who've tried to cross the Yemen-Saudi border since March 2022. That's according to a new investigation by Human Rights Watch that relies on firsthand accounts from 42 people, over 100 verified videos and photos, and an analysis of satellite imagery. This is an excerpt of a video from HRW accompanying its report. We found evidence that Saudi border guards have used explosive weapons and shot people at close range in what appears to be a policy targeting migrants and asylum seekers, including women and children, at the border. Human Rights Watch believes this may amount to crimes against humanity. Saudi Arabia's border forces should stop intentionally using lethal force to kill Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers with explosive weapons. That video from Human Rights Watch. President Biden hailed a new era for cooperation between the U.S., South Korea and Japan as he hosted leaders of the two nations at Camp David Friday. It was the first such meeting between the three countries as South Korea and Japan pursue a rapprochement in the face of what they call dangerous and aggressive behavior by China in the South China Sea. The three heads of state also discussed North Korea. This is President Biden. We're doubling down on information sharing including on the DPRK's missile launches and cyber activities, strengthening our ballistic missile defense cooperation. And critically, critically, we've all committed to swiftly consult with each other in response to threats to any one of our countries from whatever source it occurs. The Biden administration will recommend COVID-19 booster shots for all this fall to ward against a new wave of infections. Vaccine makers will submit updated versions of their shots for regulatory approval that protect against the subvariants driving current infections, ERAS and Fornax. While cases are on the rise, they still remain comparatively low. U.S. officials will also recommend everyone get their flu shots and RSV shots. And here in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill banning the release of nuclear wastewater into the Hudson River. The legislation came after campaigning by activists and local communities to stop Holtec International, the owner of the decommissioned Indian Point nuclear facility, from dumping one million gallons of radioactive water into the Hudson. The group Food and Water Watch celebrated the law for, quote, prioritizing public health and the environment over corporate expediency, adding, quote, today we celebrate the power of our communities over corporations. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Guatemala, progressive presidential candidate Bernardo Arevalo has won a landslide victory in a runoff election against former First Lady Sandra Torres. Arevalo took nearly 60 percent of the vote Sunday in an historic election. Arevalo, who's a member of the Semilla Party, has vowed to fight corruption and push for social reforms. He addressed supporters last night. Oi. 
Today, we accept with humility the victory the people of Guatemala gave us. Ballot boxes have spoken, and the Supreme Electoral Court, with 93.6 of the tally, has officially recognized the result. And what the people shout about is enough of so much corruption. We would like to think the convincing result of this election will make evident that any attempt to derail the electoral process will not take place. The people of Guatemala have forcibly spoken. Otherwise, get out to ask the people that are outside in an unprecedented act in our political history. We are calm because we know. Karen Herrera and I are out in front of you because this has been the convincing decision of the people of Guatemala. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of former Guatemalan President Juan José Arevalo, Guatemala's first democratically elected leader, who pushed for revolutionary policies when he was in office from 1945 to 1951. Three years later, in 1954, the CIA backed a coup, putting an end to democracy in Guatemala. Bernardo Arevalo's victory comes after a tumultuous year in Guatemala as the country's ruling business and political elite took extraordinary measures to maintain its grip on power. Prior to the first round of voting, election authorities barred three prominent presidential candidates, including the indigenous leader Thelma Cabrera. Then in June, Bernardo Arevalo stunned many in Guatemala when he placed second in the first round of voting after running on an anti-corruption platform. Soon after, the attorney general's office suspended Arevalo's Samia party and police raided their offices. While Arevalo was allowed to keep running for president, he may still be blocked from becoming president. We go now to Guatemala City, where we're joined by two guests. Alan Nairn is an award-winning investigative journalist who's reported on Guatemala since the 1980s. And Frank LaRue also joins us, a Guatemalan human rights activist and lawyer who confronted the Guatemalan military at the height of the terror of the 1980s and brought the first case of genocide against former Guatemalan military dictators, including General Rios Montt. From 2008 to 2014, he served as U.N. Special Rapporteur. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Frank LaRue, let's begin with you. Your response to Arevalo's overwhelming victory last night. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, we are really delighted. Uh, Guatemala has had a sequence of very corrupt governments, uh, but also tied uh, to, to the military, to uh, the misdealings with organized crime. It has been an absolute mess, and this has deteriorated the justice system progressively. So all of a sudden, having a small party like Semilla, but with a wonderful history of honesty and tradition, brings about a new era of hope for Guatemala. Guatemalans really feel that the, the course of history is changing. I think this is really important. And this is what they expressed in the vote. Um, the time was right because the crisis has deepened so much, especially in the current government under President Yamate. So people were desperate for uh, an opportunity of a change. And as the electoral authorities eliminated other possibilities, Semilla became the only alternative for change. And today, people are welcoming him as the new government. 
Tell us more about the presidential candidate who won, Bernardo Arevalo, uh, the son of the first democratically elected president of Guatemala. Can you talk about his rise to power right now and whether you think the political and government elite of Guatemala will actually let him take office? Well, this is going to be the big challenge. Bernardo is a very interesting man. He uh, has his, he is an academic. He's a very well-trained uh, statesman, but also he has been a diplomat uh, working for the Foreign Service of Guatemala. So he, he really knows the world and he is a great analyst. But the figure of his father also is very important. His father was, the, like you said, the first democratic president that brought change to this country. The first labor code, uh, the, first, the social security system was established. Uh, the, the new education system was established. So his father was a profound reformer after the beginning of the century with many dictatorships. And I think the image of his father keeps on shining around him. He keeps on saying, I'm not my father, but I'm trying to be honest to his memory and follow his path. So I think this played a key, a key role in, in the elections as well. But more importantly, Bernardo has been a member of Congress with his party, with a very small group of, of, of congressmen for the last four years. And they have shown that they were above corruption. They were critics of everything else that was happening around, and they never sold out to any of the other corrupt political parties. So this is what I think gave them the image of honesty that they deserve. And the issue of whether he will be able to take office. Can you talk about um, the uh, Election Commission and um, the kind of threats they have faced? Yes, the, the, the justice system in Guatemala has deteriorated progressively, especially since the past government expelled CSIG. CSIG was this commission of the UN supporting criminal investigations. And it was very successful, very successful to challenge high-level corruption and to challenge organized crime. But it was so successful that the ruling elite and those committed to corruption wanted to get rid of it. And effectively, they moved the past government to do so. And since they left, what they did is, with the support of a corrupt prosecutor general, they turned the justice system, the criminal justice system around. And now the attorney general is prosecuting honest judges and honest prosecutors. We have many of them in exile at this moment, 20-something of them in Washington, D.C., because they had to flee this, this form of persecution. The State Department has been very clear in its criticism of the attorney general and the public ministry. But now they were trying to use the public ministry to indict uh, Arevalo and the party. But this is this cannot be done because you cannot use criminal law to try to intervene in what is the area of electoral law. So it was decided at the end that only the electoral tribunal could make a decision on any party. So they pushed back on the prosecutor general. But now that the elections have ended and that Bernardo has been elected president, we are sure that they will go after the party again. We believe they're going to do two stages. Number one is they're trying to dissolve the party, saying that it had false signatures in the, in, in the establishment. Uh, there may be problems with some of the signatures finding the right person, but it's irrelevant 
in the amount of signatures. If a party presents 20,000, 25,000 signatures, the fact that you find 200, 300 doesn't really uh, matter. But but they, they're trying to do that because the plan number one is to allow him to become president and, and, and carrying Herrera vice president, but you would have a government without a party. So they would not be able to really organize things in Congress or try to find followers of the party. And plan number two is then to attack the members of the party on false charges of, of, of crime, including Bernardo and Karin. I mean, obviously, they have immunity for the, for the position they have, but that immunity can eventually be lifted by Congress or, or by, by the Supreme Court, actually. And what they would do is they would try to initiate some investigation to keep the new government at bay all the time, or at least harassed by criminal law. This is truly the perfect example of lawfare in Guatemala. So we, we believe that the way to defend Arevalo is to build as much as a massive support of population, like it did turn out for the vote in the elections. I want to bring Alan Nairn into this conversation, an investigative journalist who's won many awards for his coverage of Guatemala and particularly of the U.S. involvement in uh, the terror campaign in Guatemala that saw so many hundreds of thousands of Guatemalans killed since the 1980s. Start by talking about the significance of this election, Alan, and then go back in time, back to 1953, even before, because Bernardo Arevalo's father was the first democratically elected president of Guatemala, then the U.S. CIA coup, and what this means for Guatemalan history? Well, I think this election was a referendum on the old regime. Uh, the old regime that was imposed when the U.S. invaded in 54 and overthrew uh, the democracy that was just getting started uh, with the presidency's first of Arevalo's father and then with his successor, uh, Arbenz. What they were doing were, were things like uh, basic land reform, social security, uh, free speech, uh, the idea of equal rights for uh, farm workers, laborers, and the oligarchs of Guatemala and uh, of the United States, specifically President Eisenhower and the CIA, and specifically United Fruit, found this intolerable. They sent the CIA to invade. They overthrew those, uh, the nascent democratic regime, and they began an era of military dictators who worked on the principle that first, uh, basic human equality was unacceptable as a political program, and that secondly, Anyone who they imagined opposed them had to be killed. Uh, the military terror backed by the United States reached its peak in the early 1980s. Uh, there was a guerrilla movement uh, in the mountains against the army. Uh, the army, by its own account, uh, swept through the mountains using a strategy developed in coordination with the U.S. military attaché uh, at the time, Colonel George Maness. Uh, Maness himself described this to me. And as they swept through the mountains, they wiped out, by their own count, uh, 662 rural indigenous uh, villages. Um, they did this 
at the orders of the military dictators, uh, particularly General Lucas and General Rios Montt and later General uh, Mejia, and they did it with the full support of the United States. At the end, the wealth of the oligarchs uh, was preserved. Um, there, in after the 90s, there was a series of nominally elected governments, but which gave no opportunity for social change. But now, uh, for the first time, that whole regime, that whole regime that started uh, with the overthrow of democracy and went on to include uh, genocide, um, has now been repudiated by the Guatemalan public in the first chance they really got uh, to vote on it. And this could be uh, the beginning uh, of a turn uh, in Guatemalan history. And the significance of it being Bernardo Arevalo uh, in this historic role. And you were there for the first uh, a primary uh, with Bernardo coming, Bernardo Arevalo coming in second. And now this one, where he really swept. Um, whether you believe um, he will be able to take office. Uh, it's not clear yet, and it's really up to people here um, to decide whether that happens. In a way, the, the vote and the votes which they cast yesterday were the first stage of the referendum, and they supported uh, the idea of repudiating the old regime by roughly a 60-40 margin. But now the second stage uh, begins. As Frank just uh, detailed, the what they call the Pacto de Corruptos, uh, the covenant of, cor cor of the corrupt, uh, the descendants of the old massacre regime, the current uh, rulers, they will use uh, every level, every trick available to try to block it from the presidency. So the second phase of the voting, in a sense, for the Guatemalan public uh, begins now, because uh, they may have to take to the streets uh, to defend the results uh, of this uh, vote. I think the fact that the vote was so overwhelming will make the regime think twice, but uh, they're probably going to go ahead anyway. So this may, in the end, uh, be settled uh, in the streets. Uh, in what will hopefully be a peaceful confrontation uh, between uh, the public and the, uh, the descendants of the old regime. And, Alan, what makes you think this is different than what took place in 2015 in terms of the mass protests at that time against corruption? Well, in a way, that was the— uh, beginning of the process that culminated in Arevalo's uh, election, because those protests in 15, those mass protests, which uh, filled uh, the plaza with uh, many thousands of people persistently, week after week, ended up bringing down uh, General Otto Perez Molina, who was the president at the time. But he was brought down not for his role in the 80s massacres. Uh, in fact, during those massacres, uh, when I was in uh, the mountains and talking to the troops as they described how uh, they would torture, strangle people to death, 
make them dig uh, their own mass graves, uh, execute them, uh, pitch their bodies into the graves, uh, and come back in their U.S. Uh, helicopters and bomb and strafe villages, those soldiers, many of the soldiers who were describing that process, were directly under the command of Pettis Molina. And I actually met Pettis Molina in the mountain at the time. He was using an alias. He was known as uh, Major Tito. Uh, uh, but he was the one, uh, he was one of Rios, General Rios Montt's field commander for the slaughter. But he, after he later uh, rose to general and became a director of military intelligence and became an asset of the U.S. CIA. Uh, after that, he was uh, elected president. And in office, uh, he was, in the end, brought down by these mass demonstrations and by the prosecution of the U.N.-backed special prosecutor, Sisik, which Frank mentioned. But he was brought down not for his role in the massacres, but for his being uh, a thief, for his being corrupt. Um, but after Pettis Molina was ousted, he was just replaced by uh, more of the same, and the popular movement uh, did not have the leverage to go any further. Now, though, uh, with Arevalo, if he can take office, there is the potential that they can actually, that uh, as a representative, through the representation of Arevalo, uh, the popular movement can actually begin to wield uh, state power, or at least the state power that the president will be able to exercise because he will be hemmed in by a hostile uh, Congress and uh, the powerful forces of the oligarchy, uh, which is still intact. But having the presidency can make a tremendous difference. And this really could be the beginning of the end what could be, of, of what could best be described as the U.S. invasion genocide era, an era that started in 54 and possibly started to conclude yesterday. Frank LaRue, I want to turn to Guatemalan President Alejandro Diamate speaking to reporters while casting his vote Sunday in Guatemala City. We have only one incident. A truck carrying electoral boxes had an accident in Santa Catarina, Ixtahuacan. The police are protecting the electoral material until the members of the electoral board arrive to collect it. Apart from that, polls are opening in the remaining 340 municipalities without incident. I hope that the day will be peaceful and that whoever the will of the people chooses wins. Whoever wins is going to be respected? I am a man who respects the Constitution. I think I am one of the few in the region who respects it. Here, power will be handed over on January 14th, no matter who it is. The important thing is that the people choose and that it is legally confirmed. That's the Guatemalan president, Alejandro Giamate, Frank LaRue. What happens with him next and exactly what he's saying? I am a man who respects the Constitution. Um, here, power will be handed on January 14th, no matter who it is. The important thing is that people choose, and that is legally confirmed. Yes, this, this is an important statement, not because we believe in Giamate, Giamate has lied all through his teeth during four years of government, and he's probably been one of the most corrupt presidents uh, that we have had. But the reason that he's making these statements, I think, and this we have to give credit, is, number one, 
because he knows that the people of Guatemala want change. And this has been proven by the vote. I mean, the fact that almost 60% of the population voted for Arevalo means that the people of Guatemala decided to take the country in a different course. And I think that he recognizes that. But secondly, and I must give credit to this, is because of the international pressure. Guatemala, because of being such a tragic case, especially in the misuse of justice or criminal justice, drew a lot of attention. So we have an enormous amount of delegations and domestic initiatives of of election observation as well. And it is that pressure, even the OAS had a meeting just on Guatemala before the the second round, uh, sent the Secretary General to investigate the situation and report back to the Permanent Council of the OAS. I think these elements built enough pressure to make Yamate understand that they could not get away with stopping the elections uh, last Sunday, yesterday, which was, I believe, their original intention. So now they will allow transfer to power in January, yes, but in what conditions? And and I think that's still in, in, in a challenging mode because in the meantime, the Attorney General, who, although independent, responds to what Yamate says, is still investigating, on one hand, the members of SEMIA, including Bernardo Arevalo, but on the other hand, it's even begun investigations against the five members of the Electoral Tribunal and even members of the staff. The, the, the head of uh, digital information has left the country. Uh, for fear of being uh, prosecuted and, and detained. So now the attorney general is taking it out even on the electoral authorities because they did their job well. So the situation remains tense. I think it obviously they have to acknowledge the decision and the overwhelming strengths of that decision in, in the elections, but they will keep on doing whatever they can to, to put obstacles to the new government, whether they dissolve the party or whether they can stop the inauguration, they will try to do it. And if not, they will try to make it impossible for him to govern. So I think the message here is uh, for the people of Guatemala is to defend their vote by supporting their new government and demanding transparency and getting and demanding the resignation of corrupt uh, 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 people in in government positions like the attorney general. Uh, And eventually for the international community is to to have as much support as possible for transition to real democracy in Guatemala. Well, Frank LaRue, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Guatemalan human rights activist, lawyer who brought the first case of genocide against the former Guatemalan military dictatorships from 2008 to 14. He served as U.N. special rapporteur, speaking to us from Guatemala City. And investigative journalist Alan Nairn has covered Guatemala since the 80s, also there in Guatemala City. Next up, we go to South Africa, where leaders of BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa are holding a major summit as the group looks to expand. Back in 30 seconds.
Pueblos by Sara Kuricic and Lila Downs. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to South Africa, we're leaders from the leaders—we're leaders from BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are holding a major three-day summit this week, where the group looks to expand its leadership. Chinese President Xi Jinping is heading to the summit today for just his second trip abroad this year. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India and Brazilian President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva will also attend. But Russian President Vladimir Putin decided not to travel to South Africa to avoid facing possible arrest on war crimes charges, because South Africa is a member of the International Criminal Court, a signatory. The five BRICS nations' presidents uh, represent about 40 percent of the world's population, about a quarter of the global economy. Over 40 other countries have expressed interest in joining BRICS, but major questions lie ahead for the group. We go now to South Africa, where we're joined by two guests. Trevor Nguani is Soweto-based scholar and activist, part of the struggle against apartheid, chairperson of the United Front, an umbrella body of community and labor groups. Patrick Bond is distinguished professor and director of the Center for Social Change at University of of Johannesburg. His recent counterpunch article is headlined, The BRICS Johannesburg Summits Hype, Hope, and Helplessness. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Uh, Professor Bond, why don't we begin with you? Talk about what you expect of the summit, the significance of it, and the fact that it's taking place in South Africa, the leaders there, but not the Russian president, who's afraid of being arrested if he steps foot in South Africa. Well, thanks for having uh, Trevor and I back with you. It's great to be on the finest uh, show, inquiring in a creative way at what uh, is presently a major left contradiction, which is that there's a, a great deal of anti-imperialist rhetoric, uh, and particularly if uh, Vladimir Putin had he come, and certainly Sergei Lavrov, his, his foreign minister in his place, along with China, are so strongly against the U.S. At the same time, India is leaning much more with the trip uh, to visit Joe Biden and then to Emmanuel Macron in France after that. And South Africa being pooled, really, with Brazil, uh, a solid uh, progressive democracy, but where the, the president, Lula, is not his own master. So it's a very unstable situation in which this expansion of 23 candidates, mostly tyrannies, carbon-addicted economies, and their leaders possibly looking for a way out after the U.S. financial sanctions were so tough on the one hand. And then there's a lot of talk about de-dollarization. Lots of talk, but not much uh, we can expect. So I'm looking at a bit of a damp squib when they leave uh, on uh, it'll be Wednesday after, uh, Thursday afternoon. And Trevor Nguane, your concerns about what's happening right now? Well, uh, thank you very much for having us uh, here on Democracy Now. Yeah, one of our concerns is this binary division of the world into West and East and a degree, an element of intolerance, hostility, and uh, projecting a false hope to the masses that answers are coming from uh, what I think is a state-centric top-down uh, New World Order project. Uh, half of the leaders are actually elected dictators, the way they're running their countries. So my concern is how all this, you know, pans out for ordinary people, for the working class who are facing everyday hardships, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, austerity programs. That is uh, our concern here. 
And can you talk about the significance of Russian President Vladimir Putin not coming? Um, it's not that South Africa wanted to arrest him, but as signatory to the ICC, International Criminal Court, which, of course, the United States and Russia are not, um, they would have been obliged to arrest him. Uh, so he is the one leader who will not be there. He'll be, I guess, zoomed in. Your thoughts on this, Trevor, and if you can talk about the power of both Russia and China in Africa and the U.S. Um, seeing Africa as a, a, a place of competition for um, U.S.'s expanding power in Africa versus China and Russia. Yes. So anti-imperialism is not necessarily anti-capitalism. In other words, you know, uh, Putin, uh, Modi, Ramaphosa, South Africa, they can say certain things against the USA, but it doesn't mean that at home their domestic policies favor the poor, favor the working class. So that, that is the big issue for us. Also, uh, there's a level of geopolitics which turns ordinary people into cannon fodder. You know, working class uh, children, sons and daughters being turned into soldiers to fight wars, sometimes probes the wars all over the globe uh, without any real benefit to their class, to their parents, to their communities. Now, Putin not coming here of course, uh, is a climb down by both uh, Putin and the South African government. The South African government is caught between what it defines the, as the East and the West. You know, investment is coming from Russia, investment is coming from the USA, from Germany. It can't make up its mind on which side its bread is buttered as it tries to play into basically inter-imperialist rivalries. So uh, I think that uh, from the point of view of ordinary people, you know, what should be the issue is how do we stop the rich getting richer? How do we address the energy crisis here in South Africa? Most of the time we have rolling power failures because the government is failing to handle our energy properly. We've got austerity. We've got interest rates rising up almost every quarter. You know, even the middle class is complaining now. So there's a lot to be done. But I think it's all happening up there on top, upstairs. But it doesn't really address the problems of uh, ordinary people. From that point of view, some of these machinations are hegemonic projects to stop dissent at home and actually call for a unity which does not benefit the masses. Patrick Bond, if you can talk about the countries that want to join BRICS uh, to expand it, like Argentina, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, what BRICS represents, and also um, India, for example, rejecting the idea to give its, up its rupee in exchange for uh, a uniform uh, currency. Yes, that latter point is a real reflection of whether there is a, an anti-imperialism, say, against the U.S. Federal Reserve managing the U.S. dollar. 
very badly with too much quantitative easing, loosening one day and too much tightening the next and financial deregulatory ideology and the US dollar. I mean, I think the world would, would be much better without that um, centric uh, dollar centric system. However, um, the Chinese and the Indians have very strong exchange controls, and they won't want to give that up. The yuan and the, the renminbi and international and the um, the rupee, along with the, the ruble, which is under such crisis, it's just been crashing. And with the uh, SWIFT system no longer accepting deals with Russia and uh, the very our South African currency very unstable, uh, the real as well. These currencies just cannot be the basis for a new a challenge to the US dollar. And so those who hope for that, for example, you'll find them in gold bugs or uh, cyber currency salespeople or uh, genuine anti-imperialists who have invested this hope that this big meeting will wreck the dollar and this is the end of it. That's definitely not going to happen. It's a long, slow process with very conservative um, leaders in the finance ministries and central banks. And likewise, when you look at these new countries coming in, you've, you've mentioned some of the key ones, Amy, especially Saudi Arabia and Iran, doing the deal with China a little earlier, the petro yuan being introduced by Saudi Arabia, the fear probably that Mohammed bin Salman has that if uh, $650 billion of, of Russian central bank and oligarch assets can be frozen and you know sort of taken away, maybe his money, if he's going to be the pariah that Joe Biden promised he would be. And then you have Iran and, and those amazing protests from women. And um, let's say uh, the tyrannies of, um, of uh, very carbon addicted states now joining those would be the two prizes. And if that's the case, I would worry about a new block of very, very strongly pro-emissions countries, uh, including more or less all five of the BRICS. I think Lula's a little more reasonable. But they would go to the UAE, another candidate at the big uh, next uh, United Nations Climate Summit, and be quite formidable. And I think you remember, Amy, from 2011, the last time we saw this kind of block was when Barack Obama walked into a meeting of the Brazil, South Africa, India, China group, and there came the Copenhagen Accord, universally condemned uh, as a deal between, I'm going to differ from Trevor uh, linguistically, an imperial climate power and the sub-imperial powers that I think the BRICS actually do represent here. And again, if you could talk further about this taking place in the context of the Ukraine war, uh, Putin not being there, and the attitude of South Africa when it comes to the Ukraine war, uh, when it comes to NATO and the China-Russia bloc, if you will. Yes, and it's been fascinating because and distracting because, as you said, the, um, the, the, the sense that Vladimir Putin is being kept out by President Cyril Ramaphosa's fear of a constitutional crisis if the courts rule that he would have to uh, have Putin arrested on the one hand. That has distracted us for, for months until uh, early July. But also there was a, an allegation by South Africa's um, the, the U.S. ambassador here, uh, Ruben Brigetti, that last December South Africa was supplying arms and they were loaded up on a ship in the dead of night in a secretive way. And that's been the subject uh, since uh, May of enormous uh, conflict between the U.S. and South Africa at that diplomatic level. And what it suggests is if Putin is thinking that now the expansion of the BRICS will solidify a bloc that um, would approve his invasion, as uh, basically four of the five BRICS did, with the exception of Brazil, in United Nations uh, uh, summit uh, votes. Those are 
uh, either uh, voting in favor of Russia, as did Russia, or abstaining, as did three of the others, uh, China and India and South Africa. And now the bloc, um, if it's going to be all 28 proposed members, would be much more even with many more people, uh, countries that had uh, voted actually against Russia. So it, it becomes a quite fluid situation. I would say that since we're looking at Russia, one of our original intellectuals who worked very hard with us, Boris Kagerlitsky, is in jail. And he's been working with our Bricks from Below network for over 10 years. And it's a great tragedy that this uh, our freedom of expression and our analysis is now very much uh, 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 curtailed by the loss of uh, Boris Kagerlitsky, who we hope for a very short period of time, a great sociologist who Putin's really just clamped down on. I want to turn to former Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff, uh, now serving as the president of the New Development Bank, which was established by BRICS. Our goal is to increase the proportion to 30 percent within five years. We want 30 percent of NDB transactions to be settled in local currencies. To do this, as I said earlier, there are two initiatives, issuing local currency bonds and at the same time raising funds in local currencies and lend in local currencies. What are the consequences? For example, in the future, cases of serious consequences such as debt crisis can be avoided amid exchange rate fluctuations and develop Developing countries will no longer experience debt surges caused by U.S. dollar exchange rate changes. So, Patrick Bond, if you could respond to President Rousseff um, and then talk beyond economics. Well, I think what Dilma Rousseff, the appointed president of the BRICS New Development Bank, the NDB, is hinting, but, but in a very careful way, illustrating these power relations, is that if you are doing development projects, especially with local currency, you shouldn't be borrowing in U.S. dollars, which are currently U.S. dollars and euros, 78% of this BRICS New Development Bank, an allegedly new and different bank. Um, and her objective is to move that 22% in local up to 30 by 2030. We think that's way too slow, too little, too late. But the really critical point is that one of the controversies is whether the BRICS New Development Bank has to speak to the New York credit rating agency, Standard & Poor's, Fitch & Moody's. And if they do, then you expect the New Development Bank to act just like any other bank. And indeed, they actually joined the financial sanctions against Russia in March last year and have continued that. And she acknowledged that herself after her meeting with Putin a few weeks ago. And those are the sorts of contradictions in the sphere of finance that when you see the way the BRICS countries operate, they didn't put up any opposition, for example, to World Bank presidents, either uh, uh, appointed by Donald Trump or by Joe Biden the last two times, or the IMF. They've taken a bigger share of the IMF. Um, they haven't got an alternative as promised to the IMF. We had really hoped for much more in the way of something substantive, but it shows this imperial, sub-imperial relationship in the financial sphere. And I don't think anyone who's been looking at it closely has much hope that we're going to see new currencies or anything that would, uh, even a cyber currency or central bank gold-backed or uh, any of the other innovations. It's only going to be a little bit more trade finance that we see uh, announced the way India has been doing with Russia. But then the big problem, again, economically, is trade imbalances within the BRICS. The, the Chinese are still um, very predatory in Africa in terms of the raw materials. And then those go into their production systems, come back as finished goods. The profits go to China. It doesn't look all that much different than the standard colonial and neo-colonial global division of labor. I want to thank you both for being with us. Patrick Bond, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Social Change at the University of Johannesburg. We'll link to your new article, The BRICS Johannesburg Summit's Hype, Hope and Helplessness. And Trevor Nguane, 
Soweto-based scholar and activist chair of United Front. Coming up, we go to British Columbia, where the Canadian prime minister deployed the military as more than 400 wildfires have forced tens of thousands of people to evacuate. Back in 30 seconds. Darkness, bring the light. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Canada, where troops are now being mobilized to fight huge wildfires across Canada as it faces its worst wildfire season on record. British Columbia has declared a provincial state of emergency. Evacuation orders are in place for more than 35,000 people. For more, we go to Chilliwack. British Columbia, for an update. We're joined by Bob Gray, wildland fire ecologist, 45-year veteran of fire suppression, prescribed burning, and research management in Canada, the U.S., and overseas. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Bob Gray. It's great to have you with us, but under very bad circumstances. Can you explain what's happening right now in British Columbia and then the Northwest Territories and across Canada? Sure. Uh, good morning, Amy. Uh, I'll start here with British Columbia. Um, we've, we're in the midst of our record fire season as far as area burned. It's also been a very catastrophic fire season. Um, across Canada, we've had five firefighters have been killed. Uh, now we're at about 1.7 million hectares burned. That's 4.2 million acres. Um, last record we had was only five years ago, and that was 1.3 million hectares. So we're on a bit of an upward trajectory as far as burned area. Um, leading up to this, we had a drought last summer, extended well into the fall and winter, um, below normal snowpack in some places, uh, normal in others, but it came off very quickly. And the fires started in June and have just not uh, abated. Uh, we're looking at a little bit of a change in weather today, but winds are coming in once again, a uh, chance of some precip, uh, say at the tail end of Hurricane Hillary, extending this far north. And then we're back into hot, dry again, which will be preceded by winds once again. So it's challenging firefighters. We um, we don't have a large firefighting workforce across Canada. Uh, we rely on um, provincial and territorial firefighters and contractors. This year, luckily, we've been able to um, pull in resources from the U.S. and overseas. Uh, the U.S. firefighters are especially very helpful because they they've worked in these ecosystems before. So. Um, but, uh, just, it's, it's a long, um, drawn out battle, um, and it's not over. We have another probably two months of fire season to go. And, uh, a lot of folks are on evacuation, about 150,000 across Canada. We've got probably 30, 40,000 here in BC and another three or 40,000 on evacuation alert. And uh, these winds coming up uh, today and tomorrow, we'll, we'll test that once again. Bob Gray, if you can talk about the links between this 
record-breaking uh, uh, rage of wildfires, if you will, um, and its connection to climate change, to the increasingly hot and dry weather that's being experienced. I mean, I, I think the missing element, certainly the media in the United States, the corporate media, does cover weather extensively now about 24-7. But it's those two words, climate change, that you're less likely to hear. Yeah, there's it, there, there's really a there's a symbiosis here between how the climate is changing relative to you know the length of a potential fire season and the fuels that provide energy to fires. So um, we are seeing longer fire seasons. They start earlier and they go later. Um, hotter, drier conditions, um, significantly higher uh, vapor pressure deficit, which draws moisture out of fuels. A higher daytime temperatures, lower daytime humidities. Um, and overnight, we're not seeing the recovery that we used to. So um, burning conditions uh, kind of in the past would, would kind of sort of slow down and stop in the uh, mid-evening and overnight because of high humidity. Well, now it's extending right through the night and into the morning. So we're in some places, we're seeing 24-hour burning going on. So longer, hotter, drier conditions, that just dries out the fuel. Um, the more fuel that's available for longer, it's just a matter of probabilities if we get an ignition. Uh, and then once things are going, it's awfully hard to put them out. So it, it's, it's a combination of two. Climate change is also leading to soil moisture deficits. So that's drought. Uh, we have a landscape that is carrying far too much density in the way of forest than it did historically. So more trees are stressed. The more we stress trees, the more we cause insects, disease, uh, actual basically drought caused death, more trees die, more fuel. So it's like it's a coupling of things. It's not just climate change. Um, if we didn't have the fuel, we can have hot, dry conditions and not have fires. So they really are a, a combined uh, problem that we're facing. So you have nearly all the 20,000 residents who've left the um, city of Yellowknife, the capital of Canada's Northwest Territories, not to mention what's happening in British Columbia. You've long pushed for more prescribed burns to reduce the chance of these massive fires. Has that been put into effect? We just have a minute for your final response. I uh, know it hasn't. Um, and here in BC, they used to burn about 100,000 hectares a year up until the early 90s, but lots of escapes and smoke. And they never really developed social uh, license to do it. Um, right now in BC, we're burning less than 10,000 hectares a year, and we should be burning a couple hundred thousand. So uh, we have to build capacity, knowledge, experience. Uh, we have to reduce barriers uh, to do it. Um, and it is effective. It's highly effective. Um, and cultural fire, too, carried out by Indigenous people. That's what these landscapes were stewarded through. It was it was the food security through burning. So we do have to get back to those practices, and they do work. Well, we want to thank you very much for being with us. Of course, we'll continue to cover this. Bob Gray, wildland fire ecologist, fire suppression expert, currently speaking to us from Chilliwack, British Columbia. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermin Sheh, Maria Terasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. If you'd like to sign up, 
for our daily digest emailed directly to you, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.